This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. So you go to a restaurant, the waitress comes out and asks you what you want, and you order the breakfast special. You order bacon and eggs and hash browns, maybe a biscuit with some gravy on the side, maybe two biscuits with gravy on the side. And uh, then you sit there and you wait and you visit with a little bit as you sip on your coffee, and eventually the food comes out. Oh, I forgot. The waitress asks you, how do you want your eggs? And you tell the waitress, you want them over easy, please, because you know how you like your eggs. And you sip your coffee, and you sit there a while, and the food comes out, and you look at your plate, and there's your eggs, and they broke the yolks. That's not the way you like your eggs. They're going to serve them up to you with broken yolks. Are you going to accept your order, or are you going to send it back? Maybe the yolks are too done. You want it over easy, and these are over hard. They broke the yolk and cooked it over hard, and that's not the way you like your eggs. Are you going to send them back? I'm going to serve you up something this morning, and you may be somewhat familiar with some of the passages we're going to talk about, and you may think you know how you like them. I'm not going to send them to you uh, with broken yolks. I might. I'm probably going to send them to you scrambled. Okay? Uh, as we go through this text this morning, it, it is a difficult text. I, I've, I've got three scenes here that I'm going to take you through. And they seem to be disconnected, but they're not. And we're going to try to make the connections as we go through this this morning so you can see why Luke picked these three things and gave us to him back to back to back. He's got some points to make, and let's see if we can connect his dots and uh, do something with it. So think about that as we get started here. Let me ask you one more question. In your household, when you, assuming you had kids growing up or you were a kid in the household, what was the uh, most egregious, close to unforgivable sin in your household that your kids could commit? Failure to do a chore? Homework? Maybe one kid called the other kid stupid. Is that allowed in your house? What's the, what was the unforgivable sin in your house? Maybe it was a, a bad word. And that always evoked the wooden spoon or something. In our house, we had uh, two um, almost unforgivable sins, sins that brought uh, consequences. The first one was the word no. You were not, when we asked you to do something or told you to do something, you were not allowed to say no. And no brought a quick request to go get the wooden spoon and meet me in the bedroom. <coughs> the other one was lying. Lying uh, was just something we didn't do. You know, I'm, you're a blanket ship. We do not lie. You admit uh, things. You tell the truth. When the words come out of your mouth, they need to be accurate. We don't lie. So th those were two things that were, they were the peeves of ours. Those, in our house, those were the queen mother of offenses, okay? Lying or, or trying to tell mom and dad no. You know, you, know you, you could say, instead of saying no, you could say, can I make a comment? Can I ask a question? Can we negotiate? But you could not say no. Okay, those were the queen mothers of sins. All right, <clears throat> so we're going to go today, we're going to go to Luke chapter 13. We're going to pick up in uh, verse uh, 10, we're going to 10 to 30, if you're not there yet. 
we did this two weeks ago. I took you to Luke 13. We did and 12. We did some other stuff there. So I'm going to give you a little bit of context, not as much as I did last time. But uh, let's just uh, to remind ourselves where we're at. Uh, Jesus has come. He has picked 12 disciples. He has trained them up. He has sent them out. And they've come back and uh, done, done very pleased with how, how things went when he sent them out the first time. Then Jesus has chosen more disciples. We use the word 72, meaning a multitude of other disciples were sent out. They did and performed miracles, did things, and they came back. Along the way with the 12 and the 72, Jesus has been training these individuals up. He's been trying to make disciples out of them so that they can go out and do whatever he wants them to do when he leaves. Some of the things that he's told them along the way here in the book of Luke is he has told them that many of the people that you go and you witness to and you evangelize to, they are not going to listen. Many of them are going to persecute you. Many of them, this is going to be a very difficult mission. You're going to have to pick up a cross and carry a cross. You will be persecuted. He's, he's also told them uh, recently that the, the religious establishment is going to be against them. They've, he's, they've witnessed so far in this journey that Luke has taken them through the, the animosity, the enmity between Pharisees and the disciples in Christ, and they are going to be uh, likewise suffer the same enmity from the religious leaders of their day and their time. He's warned them recently, told them recently, much to their dismay, that he's going away. He's not even going to hang around for a while, and then, and then when he goes away, he, doesn't, he has not told them when he's going to come back. So this whole mission, everything that he's told them so far in, some, in many ways has not been with positive spin. It's been with negative spin. And, he's, and they've had to see it, and they've had to deal with it. Most recently in, the, in, the, in our text in chapter 12, he's, he's basically told them that by now, he's told the crowds, he's told them, by now you should know who I am. You should see, see by my miracles that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. And ye, if you haven't done that, you better do it soon because time is short. You're living on borrowed time. That's the context of what's going on here. What we've essentially done in the most recent work in Luke is we've been in a certain place and there's just been many passages where Jesus has prepared his disciples and prepared the twelve for what comes next. And that whole thing, that whole discourse has come to an end. And we're going to start a whole new section in Luke here. And starting here in chapter 13 and verse 10, we're going to start something that we call the kingdom parables. Because here's, here's how this works. The, the, the overall theme of the book of Matthew is that Jesus came to establish a kingdom on earth. We all know that there's a heavenly kingdom, but he's bringing that kingdom in the book of Matthew to earth. And in Matthew 12, he tells us the kingdom has come. The kingdom is here now. So those people then, and you and I now, we live in the kingdom time of Jesus Christ. The kingdom has come. But we also know it hasn't come in its fullness, right? We use the term already, not yet many times. The kingdom has come already. We have a king. We are a people. We, have, we follow Christ. We are the followers of Christ. But the kingdom is not, we have not realized the kingdom in its fullness. We won't realize the kingdom in its fullness until he comes at the second coming and we live on a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Okay? But we live in an already not yet time. This section in Luke, and Matthew has a, has a similar section, where we get the kingdom parables is where Luke and Matthew want to tell us what Jesus told them in this already time, this unrealized fully time that we live. And you and I live here on earth. What's it going to be like to be a member of his kingdom? 
Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. He starts all his parables out, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, because Matthew's talking to the Jews, and the Jews are not uh, permitted to use God's name. So he doesn't call it the kingdom of God. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. But when you read all these parables, there's 12 of them, as a matter of fact. When you read these parables in Luke, he talks about the kingdom of God, because he's talking to Gentiles, and Gentiles aren't afraid to use God's name. Okay? So we're going to see in our text today the kingdom of God. What's being described, what we're about to go into is what the kingdom of God, as you and I experience it, as these disciples experienced back then, what should be the expectation to live in a fallen earth during a time when the kingdom has come, but not in its fullness. Okay? That's, that's context for today. Uh, that's where we're going. I'm going to do this in three parts because we have three different scenes here that we're going to look at. The first one is going to talk about the path of entry to the kingdom. The, the second scene is going to tell us about the conflict to expect in the kingdom. And the third part of this is going to talk about the occupancy of the kingdom. What our expectations should be about the occupants of the kingdom. I'm looking forward to next week because Grant will be back up here doing this. <laughs> First of all, let's start reading in uh, chapter 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had, been, who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. What are we going to learn about the kingdom here? Well, first of all, let's just see it our, get our setting down, Pat. What I just read to you is what I'm considering the setting in this whole thing. We, we've come to a new place now geographically. We, previously, there were 10,000 people. We were out in the open air speaking. Now we're in a synagogue. So we, geographically, we're in a, a new place. We're, we're on our way to Jerusalem. I think we'll, we'll figure that out when we get to uh, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So this is in context what's going on now. We're not this, the 10,000 from last time, last week, previous chapters. Uh, we're in a whole, whole new place now. We're in the synagogue again. This is not the first time Jesus has taught in a synagogue in the book of Luke. Back in chapter 4, he was in Nazareth, his hometown, and he spoke in the synagogue, and he took a verse from Isaiah, and he taught it, and he said, that passage refers to me, and they threw him out of town. He shook the dust off his feet, and he was rejected by his own, his own locals, even his brothers and sisters. So this isn't the first time he's been in a synagogue teaching. But now we're somewhere journeying towards Jerusalem, and we're, we're, we found the local synagogue and where they're teaching, right? This is the second time we find Jesus in a synagogue. And there'll be a, a third time in, at the beginning of chapter uh, uh, 14 when he's uh, back in the synagogue teaching again. So he is, is welcomed uh, intermittently to teach in the synagogue. The other thing that we want to notice about this is he's in a different place. He's in a synagogue and it's the Sabbath. 
It's their day of worship. All right. That, that would mean to us that it, since it's the Sabbath day, that the, the crowds are there, the whole local community, everyone is there to hear. Uh, and and um, we ask ourselves, why does Jesus, his sermon is going to, he's going to do something here on the Sabbath, okay? And Luke keeps bringing these Sabbath events to us in chapter 4, here in 13, and again in 14, and beyond. What is it that's so sacred about the Sabbath to them? You see, they have some laws. They have some regulations, the, the Jews do. They have actually, they don't just have Ten Commandments. They have 613 regulations that they have promoted or promulgated out of the Ten Commandments. And many of these um, regulations that they have instilled concern the Sabbath. The Sabbath represents to the Jew the queen mother of offenses. If you violate a Sabbath rule or regulation, you are violating the unforgivable sin. It is the queen mother. It is the most way to peeve these guys is to do something that breaks the Sabbath. So we want to understand here that Jesus has chosen to do what he's done, chosen to do here on the Sabbath, knowing that it breaks their queen mother of all Jewish rules. He could have done this on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, if he wanted to. But he chose to do it on a Sabbath. Make no doubt. Let there be no doubt. This was intended to provoke. He has something to teach them about their Sabbath law. And that's at the, at the crux of what he does in the healing of this woman here. He then performs a miracle. As he performs uh, the miracle, he heals this woman. There's a couple of uh, very important words I want you to, f to focus on here. She has a physical problem, right? For 18 years, she can't straighten up. Is Jesus healing her physical problem? No. What he is healing here is a spiritual problem because he says here she's had a disabling spirit. The reason she can't get up isn't because she's born in a fallen world and has a physical defect. She has a demonic spiritual problem that needs to be taken care of. She has been in bondage to this spirit for 18 years. What Jesus does here is to address a spiritual bondage, a spiritual problem this woman has. And I use the word bondage because what is the other important words? He tells her when he heals her, you are now free. Greek, you are now unbound, you are untied, you have been loosened, you have been freed from bondage. What we need to see here in, in, in the language of the day is that this woman was in a spiritual bondage and Jesus released her from a spiritual bondage. That's the miracle. The miracle isn't just that he healed somebody who'd been sick for 18 years. There's something beyond the miracle itself that's intended to be seen by the miracle itself. What Jesus has essentially done here is he has foreshadowed in releasing this woman from her bond, spiritual bondage, he has foreshadowed what he's about to do on the cross, not for just this woman, but for mankind. We need to see what he did here on this Sabbath morning in a larger sense than just an individual being healed. Not just that, but there's a rebuke. The rebuke comes from the ruler of the synagogue. Now the ruler 
of the synagogue. He's, he's the guy that's in charge of the synagogue, and on a given Sabbath, he says, it's your turn to preach, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and here's the chairs, and here's how. He organizes everything there in the synagogue. Um, so he has something to say, and, and essentially what he says is, what well, we can deduce from this, his rebuke to Jesus for doing this and breaking this Sabbath rule is essentially what we, what we understand is that he is basically a person in unbelief. He does not realize who Jesus is yet. His ears have not been opened yet. He still thinks that we are subject to the law and that the entrance into the kingdom of heaven is by obedience to the law, the 613 regulations. And Jesus has broken one of them. Jesus has just, by the commission of this violation of Sabbath law, the queen mother of all laws, he has subjected himself to being, to being cast out from the kingdom. That's what this ruler of the law is essentially saying. Okay, That's our setting. Jesus is going to, going to respond to this, and we're going to see, uh, see what he does to it. Jesus is going to try to make a point here to, about the law, though. And it's a pretty obvious point that he makes. So let's see what he has to say to the ruler of the law. Starting in verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's look at a couple of words here that will make a difference. The first one is he calls them hypocrites. Very important context in the book of Luke. This is not the first time he has called them hypocrites. In chapter 12, he called the Pharisees hypocrites. He warned his disciples, do not be taken in by the yeast, by, by the Pharisees, they are hypocrites. And that's yeast of the hypocrites. The false teaching of the Pharisees, the yeast of the hypocrites. Yeast was, was the false teaching, it was the error, it was the negative thing that they were doing. So first, the first thing you want to see is hypocrites is used in a negative sense, as is yeast. The hypocrites are using yeast. They, they're infecting this with leaven, yeast, same word, okay? So as, as he says this and he accuses this, I want you also to notice that the word hypocrites is plural. He doesn't just addressing the ruler of, of the court there. Uh, who he's addressing is the hypocrites, the, the Pharisees, everyone that's there with him, all of the leadership that's there. It's the leadership, it's the law. The ruler is just speaking on behalf of the leadership that's there. The ruler is really just a representative. So we need to understand that Jesus is directing his response here once again at the Pharisees, whose guilt, whose crime has been that they spread the yeast of hypocrisy. Okay? Now then. Jesus makes an analogy to them. He says to them, you hypocrites, don't, don't you untie your, your, your ox or your donkey and, and lead them to water on the Sabbath? Now, there's, there's a whole crowd of people there. What are they supposed to say? No, we don't do that. Everybody there does that. And so you, you can't say, say, say no. So, well, I guess so. Yeah, I guess I do that. Uh, so um, what's the point Jesus is trying to make? Critical words. 
once again. On the Sabbath, untie. All right? And he says, untie is to loose. It's to unbind. He's addressing what he just did to the woman. He just unbound her. He freed her. She was in bondage and he freed her. Don't you free your donkey and your ox on the Sabbath. You free on the Sabbath. You free your dog and ox and donkey on the Sabbath. All right, that's all I did. just did to this woman. And she's a daughter of Abraham. She's a Jew. She's a fellow Jew among you. Should she, should she not be? She's been bound. She's been in bondage, right? As this woman who I freed was in bondage, she's been bound for 18 years. She should be loosed. Again, same Greek word for untie and loose. You let something go. You let it loose. All he's doing, he's saying, I did what to the woman what you do every day to your dog donkey and to your ox. And shouldn't this woman, isn't she more valuable than a donkey or an ox? Shouldn't she too be unbound? Again, we want to see what the point Jesus is really making. The statement he is really making is, I did no more than what should be done every day. You have your 613 regulations. You have the law that you are bound under, and I have freed her from that. I have freed her from the bondage of your law, your Sabbath laws, your, th your extra laws. I have freed her from that. Let's untie her. Let's unbind her. She has, was in spiritual bondage. That, that's the story of this whole thing. So this brings, because obviously the Pharisees, the ruler there, they can't say much other than, well, I guess he got us on that one, didn't he? There's a little bit of shame there, our text tells us. So this is not the first time Jesus has done something, and you sit back and you watch them suffer, and that's going to leave a mark. And it has. They're plotting to kill him. So... Um, we pause here for just a minute, and we make sure we make the connection, all the connections that Jesus wants us to make. I have shown you that I am here to let the captives free, to let a captive free. I have freed the woman. You free your dogs, ox and donkey. Let's let freedom reign here on the Sabbath. There was a false presumption that they had. Their false presumption was that entrance, the path to heaven, the path to eternal life was by obedience to the law. And Jesus is telling him, no, I am the path to freedom. I am the path to liberty. It comes through me. They didn't expect this. It's not the law that frees you. It will be me that frees you. I, as I have freed this woman, I have come to free mankind. Now let's keep going. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in, the tr in three measures of flour until it was unleavened. Okay. These are our, our kingdom parables. He says here, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of heaven like? Let me tell you what it's going to be like here on earth in this time. And he gives a couple of um, illustrations. He, he tells a couple of kingdom parables. Uh, first thing we want to see, we've got the same setting. He says, we see therefore, 
This is just an ongoing continuation of the ox and donkey thing and the shame and the ridicule, and he's just going to take it now, and is this just a whole different idea, or is somehow this connected to the first thing that's just happened there? I'm about to scramble your eggs. You probably have heard these uh, uh, two parables many times, and I suspect most of you have an uh, idea in your mind of what you think these parables mean. You, you Maybe not, maybe, maybe not. But uh, it depends on how you interpret these parables. It depends on if you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, partial-trib, or whatever. Okay. It's also, it depends on if you're pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, pan-mill, or don't give a darn. If you're a futurist, preterist, historist, or idealist. There are many ways to view scripture. All right, and those are words some of you are familiar with, words some of you aren't. All I'm telling you is these things form how you see these two parables. And I'm going to suggest to you that I am a hybrid. <laughs> and uh, you can take or leave my scrambled eggs this morning, but I'm going to serve them up. And if you uh, accept the meal, fine. If not, you know, uh, send them back. <laughs> let's, start, let's start here with the majority position. Let's start with the mustard seed. Uh, the mustard seed, it's a seed and it grows into a large tree. And then the birds of the air flock to this tree, right? And so the symbolism in the majority position there is that what the seed that God plants, the seed, the seed that is sown, becomes something much greater than anyone thought that it would become. And people will come and be fed and feast in the, in the trees, and, uh, and it's a good thing. The mustard seed is, is so powerful, a seed the Word of God is, all right? And, and the leaven, likewise, is, um, it, it's a good thing that it's sown. And just a little bit of seed, just a little bit of gospel, just a little bit of preaching will infect the whole world. And it becomes, the church grows, and it grows, and it grows, you know, and, and birds and everybody feasts on it, and, and it's seen as a good thing, okay? That is, I say, majority position, preach almost, whatever, all those words I just said. Majority people kind of land, and that's where they go with this. Uh, I, I would like to take you a different place with it. This puts a positive spin on both of these two kingdom parables. And um, I want to give you another way of ordering your eggs here. In nature... In reality, um, mustard seed is a real deal. We plant mustard seeds. The thing with the mustard seed is, is it doesn't grow to become a tree. A, a, a mustard seed is a plant. It's a bush. All right? And so to say that it grows into this large tree, whatever, that the birds come and nest in is inconsistent with what a mustard seed is and what a mustard seed does. It's a bush. It doesn't, you know, a, a really, really large one only gets 10 feet tall, but still, it's not a tree, it's a bush. All right, and, and our, our text says, says that it was planted, but it became a tree. It became something that it was not. Something, the Word of God was planted, and it was planted become to, be, to become something, but it has taken on something that it is not. It has become a tree. And, and the birds that are in this tree, they're not healthy birds. Now, the other position is, is tenable because in Isaiah, there's a nice tree mentioned, and it's a tree of God, and, and birds come, and they're nourished by it. So uh, I'm not saying that's an indefensible position. All I'm saying is I don't see it that way in the overall context of Matthew and Luke. 
as we receive these parables because I think these birds are more, more like Steven, Silber, Steven Spielberg's crows. Okay? I don't think these are healthy birds. I think these are, are very, very unhealthy birds. Um, Revelation 18. Uh, first couple of verses. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. The context there in Revelation is a corrupt church. There's a false church that has come and has been grown and, and, and the birds are, are the Steven Spielberg birds are the birds that are in this tree. Now, I, I, I think... Seeing this in a negative sense is much more true to the context than seeing it in a positive sense. Let me, let me keep going. And what about the leaven? Leaven is, is mentioned 34 times in Scripture. Right? It's always in Scripture, uh, uh, 12 times Old Testament, 22 times New Testament. Leaven yeast is always negative in a, uh, postured in a negative sense. You know, we don't put leaven in this. We don't, we don't leaven this way. It's to remember. The, it's always don't do this leaven. We don't want leaven. And leaven infects. And leaven makes something dirty. And leaven is a bad thing. The only place in Scripture where leaven is used in a positive sense is by the people who use it right here in a positive sense. Other than that, it's always where there's always agreement in scholarship that yeast is a negative thing, a negative symbol in Scripture. So I think we should take this as a negative symbol, uh, symbol in Scripture, as it has always been. And, and we should say that something has come and infected this. the seed. It was planted. A church was grown. It's become something other than it was intended. And like leaven infects something and infects the whole loaf and makes it bad or whatever, we should see that that's what's happened in the church. That's my take on this. That's my scrambled egg version of your over-easy version. Now, let me, let me keep going with this whole idea. Because what drives this to me is context. What is the context in Luke? The context in Luke, Luke has taken these 12, he's taken these 72, and he's been telling them, I'm not the Messiah you think I was going to be. You're going to have a cross to bear, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be castigated. I did not come, you thought I came to bring peace, I came to divide. That's the context of this whole thing. The leadership, the people here, there's a hypocrisy here, there's a yeast here. That's the context of this whole thing. This guy, this ruler, he just tried to, to tell you by his laws, those laws, the Sabbath law he was telling you that I violated, that's the yeast of the Pharisees. You see what I'm saying? That's the context that's flowing through here. And when we leave this text in a minute and go on to the, next, the third chapter, we're going to talk about a narrow door. We're going to talk about... A hard place to get to. There's nothing in context here that leads us to, to think Jesus came and we're all going to live happily ever after in this kingdom now already, not yet. That isn't the context. I do the same thing with you. Matthew does, takes these two kingdom parables, and here's the order he puts them in. First of all, he does the parable of the sower. Let me tell you about the sower. Hard ground, rocky ground, thorny ground. You know, it, it ain't, it ain't, a lot of people ain't going to hear this. It isn't what you expect. Now, there's some good ground. There's a few that are going to grow, but they're going to be the exception. Well, what, what then, if we, if we do that, uh, the next parable is the parable of the wheat and weeds. So, weeds in the church, we, we sow the seed out, up comes 
weeds, up comes wheat. So in the church, what do we have? We have true believers and we have unbelievers. Should we cut it down? Should we go do some weeding? No, do not. Let the thorns exist. Let the weeds exist in the church and let it all grow together. And then we get to the last parable in Matthew's Kingdom Parables. We'll let the angels in the end do the sorting, the good from the evil, the evil from the bad, okay? But in between those three parables, we find these two right here. The context in Matthew, in my sense, in my sense of context, is still something in the church is going to be present that's not what you ordered up. It's not what you thought was going to be there. Context, to me, drives a negative spin on these two parables. The negative spin being, the church is going to, in this age, it's going to have some weeds in it. You can turn your TV on and you can see some weeds in the church. You can go to a Christian bookstore and find a lot of books that are weeds in the church. All right? The weeds, we live amongst the weeds in the wheat. It's still a fallen world. We are members of the kingdom, but there will be conflict in the kingdom. The false presumption number two is it's not going to be a big happy church. Some people take that, that first one and they, they even say that all of the earth will be saved. They will grow and grow and grow and grow, and Jesus won't come back until all are saved. They take it to that extreme. But uh, I, I think the message to us here is don't expect that we all live happily ever after until the second coming. That's chapter 2. That's the next phase. So let's, let's keep going. Let's move ahead here to the third scenario. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? What has Luke done here? There's a, a literary thing that he's done here. Okay? Um, he went on his way through. I mean, so we're, we're in a different scene now, a different location than the other. But Luke now has a, th a third idea that he wants to connect to the first two ideas. He, he's, he takes each of the, the writers of the, the Gospels, they see all the things Jesus did, did, and they put them in different order sometimes because they're trying to make different points. And Luke's going to put this one here because this thing is not random. This scene we're about to discuss is connected to the first two scenes. It's not by the law. The law is not the path to heaven and, when, and to the kingdom of God. And there will be conflict in the kingdom of God. Now let's see how Luke has taken another random thing, attached it to these two, and let's see how, what, what he does with this thing here. Um, did these people intend uh, unexpected growth in the kingdom? Did they expect an ongoing assault? What's the question the guy asks? The guy, the guy asks the question, uh, will those who are saved be few? Sounds to me like he just took a negative spin on the first two parables. If there's going to be weeds, and if there's going to be yeast, and, there's, and then there's going to be conflict, then, then who gets saved? Will there be few? Just a few people that get saved. Well, um, Let's keep going. And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and we taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Let's try to connect this to um, the previous two scenes. First word I want to deal with here is strive. In verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, we don't, I don't want us to, to think that we have to earn our way in, strive your way in, work your way in. This is an athletic term. To strive is to train. In other words, you, you are already going through, so uh, live earnestly. Before you go through that open door, as you go through the open door, earnestly, hard, train, try to get better, all, all just, just work with all, all you can, contend with everything in your life in a good way, you know, as you go through the uh, open door. The, uh, only it's not an open door, it's a narrow door. Why would, we, why would he say narrow door? How many people are going to go in? If it's a narrow door, what's the inference? The inference is obvious. It's a crowd, massive crowds are not going to charge through this door. It's going to be a few people are going to make it through the narrow door. Matthew 22, many are called, few are chosen. All right? I think that's the consistency of Scripture in this age, is that there's a narrow door. There's a word we use over and over again. I looked it up. It's a remnant. It's 88 times in Scripture. The remnant always refers each time in Scripture to there's a whole group of people, but within that whole group of people, there's a small remnant that comes out and that is faithful. It's always a subset of the whole. Put up that slide for me. I'm, I'm going to read this to you and I'm going to talk you through it. Uh, I didn't want to come up here and, and, and read 88 verses to you on remnant. So I just picked one out of the New Testament that I think speaks for the rest. God has not, um, God has not rejected the people that He foreknew. This is Paul. Paul is grieving for the fact that the, his his own people, his own Jewish friends and family, have rejected Christ, and he's dealing with that. Okay, and he's what he what he, how how he's dealing with it as the Gentiles are grafted in. He says, God has not rejected His people. Whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they seek my life. How did God reply to him? But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself several thousand men who have not bowed the knee toward Baal. Okay, God says, you're not the only one, Elijah. I have 7,000 out of the whole. I have a remnant out of the whole. So too, at this present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I believe within the race of humanity, there is a subset of those whom God foreknew, who he chose, chosen by grace, to be a remnant. And I think that's what these texts are telling us here. 
I think that is the consistency of the context of Scripture. And then we have this little banquet scene where the people all show up for the banquet. It's reminiscent of Matthew 7, right? Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Same scene. Same scene. People show up at the gate of heaven and they say, we want in. Can't we come in? And no, you can't come in. I don't know you. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. There will be many people who think they are part of the whole, or they think they are part of the remnant, but they are not. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in the kingdom parables. He's trying to tell us in the already, not yet, world that you and I live in, that these folks lived in, what should your expectation be? Okay? So I think this is the, the third point. The third thing takes us merely to the point that... Um, the remnant is a number uh, of few, of the, of the few. It says here there's a little confusing thing too. It's, this is almost comes as an aside for me. Uh, when the people come there and they're rejected and they say, and he says, you can't come in, depart from me. Um, he says, you know, you know what really hurts at that point? is It says here, um, uh, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you've been cast out. Can you imagine the pain there? He says, and you, when, you, when you've been cast out, okay, there, there's going to be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew ends the same way. He ends his, his kingdom parables are the same way. When the angels come and they do the separation at the end, he says, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth from those that didn't come in. Uh, Luke's saying the same thing here. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, but how, how is it that if I'm outside the banquet that I can see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in there? Got an answer for that? I got a verse for you. It comes in Luke 16. We're not quite there yet. Just remember the story of Lazarus, the poor young beggar, and there's the rich guy at the table, and Lazarus begs for crumbs, and he won't give him any. And then it comes to the time when they're both dead, and they're, it says they're in Hades. Hades is not hell. In, in Scripture, Hades is the place where we wait until there's a new Jerusalem. And there's a chasm, it says, between that divides us off. And, and Lazarus is over here, and in Luke 16, it says he's in the bosom of Abraham, being comforted. And over here on the other side is this guy who wouldn't give Lazarus a nickel. And he says, how, how about having Lazarus just dip his finger in water and bring me one drop of water? Because he can look across and he can see over there on the other side where Lazarus is. And, and Lazarus maybe can see back and forth. There's, there's a vision here of, of being on the outside and being able to look in and what great regret you would have if you were still on the outside. We just talked about last time I was up here. And it says time is short. You better settle up. Remember we talked about the building of Shalom falling on the people and they didn't expect it their time. They didn't have time to make a dying declaration of faith. Time is short. We need to deal with it now because you're in the kingdom. And you, you, you don't want to be left out here weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right? Now then, from the, no from the east, uh, Bruce did a little some of this, from the north and south, east and west, the people will come. Remember, Luke is the book to the Gentiles. And what he's saying to the Gentiles is people from all nations, all tribes, north, south, east, and west are coming in. Gentiles, the story isn't just for the Jews. I want to make sure you understand you are included. I see nothing in this room, I don't think, but Gentiles. We are, we are the north, south, east, and west. We will come from those directions. 
And people that you least expected to be there are going to be there. And the people you most expected are to be there are not going to be there. That ruler, he's not going to be there. Those Pharisees, you realize, they're not going to be there. They're the first now. They'll be the least then. All right. What, where we live now, how we live now, is not indicative. Our status in society or culture or whatever is not indicative of our religious standing before the eyes of God. Let's close this thing out. Let's get a little bit of application. So he's, he's, he's looks, got these three things. He's prepared the disciples. He's told them about all the hardships they're going to, and, and now he's telling them about the kingdom of God. You're, you're bringing the kingdom in. You're helping me bring the kingdom in, make people realize. But let me tell you how it's going to be. It's not going to be as sweet as you thought it was going to be. It's going to be conflict. There's going to be weeds. There's going to be uh, all kinds of issues that you may have to have to deal with. The first thing to realize from this is the path to the kingdom for them is the same way, is the same path as it is for us. We must be, un, we must be freed from the bondage, spiritual bondage. We must be untied. We must be loosed. Jesus is the way. As Jesus showed how I can do this with one woman who's eight for 18 years, has been a cripple, and I release her, I'm about to go to the cross and release all of mankind that will submit and believe to me in faith. So obedience to the law does not free us. It's what Jesus does to us and for us that frees us. We live in a world where that is not the majority view. Majority view is, I'm a good person. I go in by the law. We just saw the Sabbath law or any other law, the queen mother of law, all laws, will not save you. Number two, we live in a world where uh, Satan has infiltrated the church in every way possible. He infiltrates our lives in books, in seeker-friendly pulpits, in false gospels. Uh, we just need to realize that if there's one thing you need to have and you need to gift your kids with, it is a four-star class A crap detector because there's more Christian crap out there than there is truth. And we need to admit it, we need to know it, and we need to have our eyes peeled for it. Third, the occupancy in the kingdom of heaven is for a few. It's a narrow door. There's this bakery in uh, Pagosa Springs, and when you walk down the street, sometimes they, they got a sign on the doors, and it says, it says, open. And sometimes they got a sign on the doors, and it says, shut. That was a word in our text today, shut. And when I read that word, that's what I thought. We go to, if, you, if you go to that bakery, we went there recently and it was shut. And we got shut out. Don't be shut out. We are the few.